I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, we're joined by Jack Cornfield to honor and remember the life of Thich Nhat Hanh, Buddhist monk, Zen master, and peace activist. But his gift, and one that changed me greatly, was to bring an exquisite sensitivity and simplicity at the same time to how we could understand our interconnection. And later, journalist Katie Butler on how Thich Nhat Hanh's embrace of pain and suffering helped reframe her world. He gave me a certain courage to keep looking at things that are difficult. I mean, I feel like a real basis of Buddhism is acceptance is the key, that life has suffering. And we humans tend to make it so much worse because we try not to accept it and to turn away from it. The life, the influence, and the humility of Thich Nhat Hanh, coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. January 22nd of 2022 marked the loss of one of the most significant leaders of the Buddhist world. Thich Nhat Hanh was born in Vietnam in 1926. He was a Buddhist Zen master, prolific writer, poet, and influential peace activist, marching to end conflicts in Vietnam and for civil rights in America with Dr. Martin Luther King. For most Americans and Westerners, Thich Nhat Hanh is also remembered for his ability to bring Buddhism to the West. He taught simple, accessible practices, such as walking meditation and mindfulness, being present in the moment, finding happiness in the simplest of things, like peeling an orange, sipping tea, or washing the dishes. So who was this humble teacher, affectionately known as Thai, and how was his presence able to inspire thousands, if not millions, of people? Joining us now to reflect on the life and work of Thich Nhat Hanh is Jack Cornfield, one of the foremost meditation and mindfulness practitioners in America. Cornfield co-founded the Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts and the Spirit Rock Center in California, where Thich Nhat Hanh periodically addressed students in the art of mindfulness. His many books include The Wise Heart and No Time Like the Present. Jack Cornfield, it's an honor to have you on with us today to talk about the life and legacy of Thich Nhat Hanh. Welcome to Life Examined. Thank you. Well, Jack, we're spending the hour thinking about Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, reflecting on, on the sadness of this enormous loss, what he meant to the Buddhist community, all the books he's left behind. So I wonder if you could just start by sharing some reflections of your time with him and the kind of impact he made on you. Well, first, I'd like to start by inviting everybody who's listening, whether they're in their morning drive or their, you know, preparation for a Zoom meeting to pause and take a couple of long breaths and let yourself quiet down for a moment in the midst of our collective busyness. Mm. And with the long breaths to release whatever is going on for you and enter a space of some ease and presence. This is to begin with a way to both honor Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh and also to honor ourselves because that was his great invitation. When you said that there was sad news, it's not so sad in a certain way because he was 95. He lived an incredible life and left us with many gifts. But more importantly, when in his death poems and his last writings, Thich Nhat Hanh spoke about his dying, he said, if they tell you I've died, it's not true. He said, just as a cloud turns into snowflakes and rain, enters the rivers and returns to the ocean to be warmed by the sun and become a cloud again, I can never die and I can never leave you. I am in you. My words, my teachings are carried in your hearts. They are part of you. And I am a part of you in all these profound ways. This is 
part of the essence of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings, that who we are is life itself expressing in this moment in our unique form. He says, birth and death are only doors through which we path, pass a game of hide and seek of consciousness itself. So I start with this because he was such a, a voice for connection in the deepest possible level. And yes, he came of age during the American Vietnam War and he started the Youth for Social Services or some name like that, even as a very young monk, bringing together young people who would not take sides with the North and the South, but said, we take our stand on a peaceful heart. We take our stand in compassion and our connection with all. And that became the leitmotif, the, the essence of his life's teaching. And of course, when he came to the US um, back in the 1960s and met with Dr. Martin Luther King, they saw each other as kindred spirits. Martin mm -hmm. Luther King saw him as a both courageous and wise activist and, and profound teacher nominating for him for the Nobel Prize. And that carried out throughout Thich Nhat Hanh's life and in all sorts of ways. He was so dedicated to it and to the making of peace that he became that. And I remember when we invited Thich Nhat Hanh to our center in uh, Marin County in Northern California, a number of times. And we gathered 2000 people on the hillside. There was a big platform and first his monks and nuns and his um, quite remarkable um, companion nun, Sister Chang Kong, gave teachings about quieting the mind and heart, coming into the present, seeing deeply, and they passed out apples so we could all do a mindful eating meditation and come into an embodied presence. And then at a distance, you could see Thich Nhat Hanh walking up the road toward this platform to offer teachings and all 2000 people on this hillside could see him come. And he walked so slowly and mindfully with such a sense of presence that you could feel the whole hillside go, ah, this is what it means to be present and mindful. It was a remarkable and beautiful moment. How did his work, his writings, his poems, his teachings, how did they impact you, someone who's also spent a life teaching Buddhism and, and going deeper and deeper into the practice? One of the ways that I was profoundly influenced by Thich Nhat Hanh was his gift of presence and simplicity. Like the Dalai Lama who can give all kinds of profound and esoteric teachings. I remember watching the Dalai Lama when he first came to the US and gave this huge um, lecture at Harvard University. It was a special endowed annual lectureship and the Memorial Hall, I think it was in, was just crowded with people. And he went on for a couple of hours about the, um, Nagarjuna and the Madhyamaka and all this extraordinary philosophy from Tibetan Buddhism. And then toward the end, I only understood half of it and I've been studying it for much of my life. It was mm -hmm. quite profound. Toward the end, he, he smiled and laughed. He said, it doesn't matter if you don't understand this. What really matters is compassion. And in exactly the same vein, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh had a profundity so that books like his book called Transformation at the Base, 50 Verses on the Nature of Consciousness, are as deep as anything a, a Zen master has offered in modern times. He would sit and say, let yourself breathe and bring in with each breath a sense of calm and ease. And with each breath, feel your interbreathing, your interconnection with all of life. 
and he used the word interdependence to describe the profound teachings in Buddhism of dependent origination, a, a, a radical way of seeing the world as interconnected that had been quite abstract for most people. But his gift, and one that changed me greatly, was to bring an, an exquisite sensitivity and simplicity at the same time to how we could understand our interconnection. And his famous poem, Please Call Me By My True Names, where he talked about how the, he said, I am, I am the caterpillar feasting on the leaf and I'm the leaf itself. I'm the refugees in a, in a boat. I'm the small girl being abused by a sea pirate. And I am also the sea pirate mm. whose conditioning has brought him to this. And he could see reflected in all beings, the underlying consciousness and life that doesn't separate us. This gift of taking the most profound teachings and making them available to us um, was one of his really special offerings. And again, he said at one point, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, continuing that image, he said, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And by putting it in such simple and poetic language, because he was, among many things, a great poet, he allowed us to take these teachings and say, oh yes, who is that one person in this boat of the world? Maybe it's me. It's an invitation for you to become that calm center and to know that it's possible for you. So all of that affected me deeply. We, we know that Thich Nhat Hanh played also a very vital role in, in how he could bring Buddhism to the West and how he could translate it to Americans in perhaps many of the ways that you're talking about right now. And, you know, I think for a lot of folks, they think of Zen Buddhism as very austere and, and rigid and um, a hard, hard to understand and cryptic. But perhaps you could speak about how he maybe understood the psyche of the West and, and could penetrate it through his teachings. Well, um, he had a big effect on many parts of the Zen community in the West. And as you say, you know, Zen practice, which has grown in Japan, especially Japanese Zen, got connected in many ways with also with Japanese with Shinto, but also with Japanese martial arts. Mm. And it had a, a kind of austere and uh, ascetic dimension to it. And also through the practice of koans and other things, a kind of mystique about it. And when Thich Nhat Hanh came to the US, he also met with the leaders and students of some of the majors and centers, teaching them mindfulness. Mm. And um, instead of it being esoteric or austere, and those Zen students, some of them had even looked down upon mindfulness, like that's a low class practice compared to our Zen. That's, uh, you know, being a mindful observer is like um, losing the point of absorbing yourself in the mystery. Mm. And Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh said, no, mindfulness is our practice, the practice of opening to the reality of the present. And here's how you might do it. And he explained it not only to the Zen tradition, but to anyone who was interested in Buddhist practice and teaching in such a way that you could feel it where you are. That each day we can, in each hour, we can either be lost in thought, reactive, caught up uh, with the programs and the ideas and the ambitions that we have and the things we need to tend to, or we can pause for a moment 
I'd like to call it a sacred pause that he invited us into and say this moment is a moment of presence and deep compassion, complete in itself in this mystery of life. And mindfulness is the gateway. His book, The Miracle of Mindfulness, written almost 50 years ago, um, became a bestseller because it showed us that we can live more alive, more present for one, for one another and for all that we care about. There's a line from the uh, works of James Joyce <clears throat> where he wrote of one character, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Yeah. And we can live our days not connected with ourselves in some important way. And being in Thich Nhat Hanh's presence or reading his words and his poetry, his invitations, takes us back to connect with our bodies, <clears throat> with our hearts and our spirit. Hmm. He left an incredible amount and, and volume of work. I mean, he was a prolific writer and scholar. For those that are listening and are wondering, I, I want to engage with Thich Nhat Hanh, where, where would you suggest someone begin? Start with the book, The Miracle of Mindfulness, hmm. or the book, Peace is Every Step. So simple. Or go online and watch him teach. There's a, a huge number of YouTubes and clips of his teaching. It's, it's available everywhere. Look for the simple place to start because that takes you right into Thich Nhat Hanh's heart. What's also true about his teachings is that he emphasized joy hmm. and he emphasized smiling. And when I first heard him teach that as you sit and breathe, inviting with each breath a sense of calm and ease, and then put a half smile on your face like the Buddha, I had a little bit of a reaction like that half smile and calm and ease was skipping over the sufferings of life, skipping over the dilemmas and difficulties that we all carry in our hearts and that are important to acknowledge as you do a meditation practice or as you open yourself <clears throat> in a wise way to this, wise and compassionate way to this life. And I was with Thich Nhat Hanh at a Zen center where he was giving a set of teachings to a small group of us teachers. And as he talked about calm and half smile and joy, I began to feel sad and even a sense of grief. And later I was sitting with him at lunch and I said, Ty, I'm confused because you talk about smiling and cultivating joy. And he loved to spend time with children. It was one of his other made great gifts to see mm. that child of the spirit in everyone. I said, Ty, I felt waves of sadness and grief even as you spoke about this. But what I don't understand, because we're all such <coughs> empathetic beings, is it my sadness or is it yours that I'm picking up? And he looked at me with really tender eyes and he said, I've seen so much suffering in this world. That's why I must teach joy. And so he carried all of that and wanted us in the midst of wherever we are to understand that we can turn our hearts toward well-being and joy. And that it is, <clears throat> as Andre Gide said at one point, it's a moral imperative. The passages from the Buddhist text that really illuminate his teachings, the Buddha writes or says, it was written down years later, live in joy in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy in peace, even among the troubled. Look within be still, free from fears and attachments. Know the sweet joy 
of living in the way. And he was an exemplar of this. Um, and I think it grew from the beginning, that school that he started with all those young, wide-eyed and, and courageous young people, a number of them were killed. And if you can imagine being a young monk and bringing other young people together and then seeing their death, seeing them being killed around you, what a, what a weight that might be to carry. And then of course he worked in as a peacemaker in all kinds of other circumstances around the world. Um, so he carried all of that. It's called the great heart of compassion, which is who he was. How is he present in you as, uh, as you begin to age yourself? And you probably reflect on, on age and time and, and death. And do you find him as a source of light and hope and, and wisdom? Dude, as I begin to age, come on. I'm going to be 77 this year. That's a kind of um, L.A. question as you begin to age. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get real here. I think he, you know, for me personally, he, like uh, some other great teachers that I've been with in the last part of their life, showed uh, not only a vitality, because he lost that when he had his major stroke five years ago, mm. but he showed that he could be true to what really mattered, to the life that he dedicated himself to, no matter what. And I've noticed in my own life, I've been going to um, Maui to lead retreats for many years with my dear and close friend Ramdas, who died a couple of years ago. And this last year, I went to um, lead a retreat there, a kind of Ramdas legacy retreat. And while being there, also meditated, there's a, a kind of small temple, the Hanuman Maui temple that they've made um, in where Ramdas lived out of, out of his place of living, where you can go a few people at a time and be on retreat. And I sat in his room and felt what Ramdas embodied, which was pure love at the end of his life. He loved everything. And as I was meditating in these days that I was there, I also noticed that this year, I'd started to feel a little bit bored in myself, a kind of ennui, and uh, maybe some faint kind of depression, which I'm not prone to. I'm generally enthusiastic about life. Hmm. And the thoughts that came with it, well, you know, maybe I've done enough. 16 books, I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh did 100 books, but 16 books and, and um, built some major Buddhist centers with my colleagues and friends and taught in all kinds of ways. I hardly have a single unpublished thought, you know, and done things as an activist and blah, 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 blah. I could tout all that, but maybe it's enough. Maybe I should get, go, go on a long retreat, get quiet. And then I remembered that I had taken the bodhisattva vows and the bodhisattva vows are setting an intention of the heart that no matter how long and how many lifetimes um, it takes i'll offer myself to relieve suffering and be a benefit to the beings of of this world of this universe in fact every morning the dalai lama gets up early and recites the shantideva version of these vows May I be a bridge, a raft, a boat to help people cross the flood. May I be medicine for the sick and food for the hungry. May I be a resting place for the weary and a lamp in the darkness. And may I do so as long as beings in all forms exist, as long as galaxies and stars exist until all beings are liberated from suffering. Some little vow like that that he takes and um i'd taken my bodhisattva vows and all of a sudden i remember that i said wait <clears throat> if i feel bored or complete or i've done enough which was true in its you know and how i experienced it that's really about one person as miss piggy would say moi <laughs> about jack 
But actually that's not the story. Um, the Bodhisattva vow says it's not about that one person, but rather it was a reminder, oh yeah, what brings the deepest satisfaction and the most beauty to life is to realize that we are here to serve, that we have a gift. Each of us have gifts to deliver and to serve. And all of a sudden that whole state of consciousness disappeared. And I realized that as long as I'm here, um, following the steps of Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama and so many other beings, not just the Buddhists, but so many who offer themselves and offer the light of their being and their deep compassion to the world, that that's, that's what matters. That's what illuminates life. And so Thich Nhat Hanh somehow is part of that, part of that inspiration for me. Um, and since that day, you know, in the months that have passed from that, um, there hasn't been a moment of, for me, of uh, feeling bored. Everything has come more alive again, just switching that state of consciousness. Well, Jack Cornfield, thank you for remembering Thich Nhat Hanh with us. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, your experiences. I've, I've loved just hearing all of this and, and feeling like I've gotten to know you and Thich Nhat Hanh a little bit better. I really appreciate the time. Oh, it's been, it's been a pleasure. And again, for those listening, start with his simplest books like The Miracle of Mindfulness or Peace is Every Step and realize that you don't have to become a Buddhist. In fact, spare your friends and family. What you wanna become is a Buddha. Mm. And that within you, the Buddhist texts begin, O oh, nobly born, remember who you really are. You who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember that you have a fundamental nobility and dignity and the great heart of compassion all born into you. And these practices and poems and invitations from Thich Nhat Hanh, mindfulness and compassion, they're really a reminder of what's possible for you each day, each encounter. And then life becomes really a miracle. So thank you. Once again, that was Jack Cornfield, meditation teacher and author of numerous books, including The Wise Heart and No Time Like the Present. Still to come, we'll continue our remembrance of Zen Buddhist master Thich Nhat Hanh and hear from one of his students about life in his Plum Village retreats in France. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. We'll be back after this short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We'll now continue commemorating the legacy of Buddhist Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. In the 1980s, Katie Butler was a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. She was also a serious Zen student. After sharing a story she wrote about Vietnam vets and post-traumatic stress with Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk asked if she'd be interested in attending a summer retreat at Plum Village in France. There, she observed that Thich Nhat Hanh's practices were not separate from living in the modern world. He thought someone should be able to meditate in the subway or while cleaning the house. Katie Butler's time with Hanh inspired her to write a number of books centered around end-of-life issues, including Knocking on Heaven's Door and The Art of Dying Well. Katie Butler, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. My pleasure. Really nice to be here. Katie, how, how did you discover Thich Nhat Hanh, um, this, this incredible master of Buddhism and, and of somebody who changed the landscape of how we think about uh, Buddhism and so much more? How did you come in contact with him? It was the 1980s. I was a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle and in an unhappy marriage. And I was also a very serious Zen student in San Francisco. 
And the Zen tradition at that point was in some ways very forbidding and strict, and yet extremely meaningful to me. Hmm. And I remember going to Zen Center one night, and there was Thich Nhat Hanh, who had been a major participant in a huge anti-nuclear rally and march in New York, and had then met my then Buddhist teacher. And I remember him coming to the front of the room, and we're all sitting, you know, cross-legged. And what he offered us was so simple. It was what he called a coconut shell meditation. And he said, this is what you can do. Imagine that you have half a coconut shell and you, it's filled with soothing water. And just imagine that as you're sitting, you take it and you turn it so that your whole body, starting with your head, is soaked and freed by this healing water. Mm. And it was really a radical departure from the Zen tradition that I was then participating in, which was so much stricter and in some ways driving us, in some ways, you know, very ascetic. Yeah. And so the whole idea of relaxing, the whole idea that your meditation could be enjoyable and could feed your soul was a little bit of a departure, I, I, have, to con- I have to confess. I love just hearing that, that meditation and the simplicity of it, and, and it sounds like the big impact it had on you. So where did you take it from there? Because I know you would end up going much further in, into the tradition yes. that he was teaching. Yeah, boy. Well, I was a writer, and I had written a piece for Yoga Journal about post-traumatic stress Vietnam veterans and my own experience of being sexually abused as a young, as an eight-year-old, and how all of those things link together. And I sent it to him, and because I thought he would find it intellectually interesting or spiritually interesting, and instead he said, I would like you to come to Plum Village for the summer. And so he saw my suffering. You know, he didn't just see me as a journalist or something like that. And I went to Plum Village for the summer. And where is that? What is Plum Village? Okay, so Plum Village is his community in exile in southern France in the Dordogne. He had bought a what had been a vineyard and then uprooted all the wine grapes and replanted with plums because in the Buddhist tradition you don't traffic in alcohol. And so he took these two little hamlets or decaying farmhouses, really, and turned them into meditation halls and invited people to come. It was a hugely important place for the Vietnamese community in exile in France, and then for floods and floods of Westerners like me who would come. We would come for the summer, we would learn walking meditation, um, live in community, and listen to him give these absolutely extraordinary lectures on Buddhist traditions and Buddhist texts. I think he sometimes underestimated, you know, he was such a powerful master of very, very simple teachings. He really introduced the concept of mindfulness to the United States, um, to the Western world, I think. And, and some of his tre- teachings are so deceptively simple. It's like, before you make a phone call, take three breaths, breathe in and out three times, and re- you know, repeat a little sentence to yourself to remind yourself of the intention of that call and your desire to practice loving speech. I mean, these are very easy, simple, practices that are, of course, very hard to sustain. And I think sometimes people underestimated the depth of his capacities as a scholar of Buddhism as well. 
And at, at Plum Village, we got these very, very deep, long three-week retreats where I, it just so enlarged my understanding of Buddhist tradition around the world and its history. But I think the most important thing for me were things like you arrive at Plum Village, you know, you check in, there's all these other people, it's a little chaotic and conditions are not optimum, you know, and there's hammocks strung all around the property. And once a week we have a, a lazy day. We don't call it a, a day. We, you, he did call it a day of mindfulness as well, but he used to talk about it as a lazy day. I mean, I think he could really see how driven Westerners were and how busy and in a way how hard we are on ourselves and then the tremendous suffering that we then put out into the world with our consumerism or our other attempts to handle our lack of peace. But he had these just such beautiful, simple ways of characterizing it so that Buddhist practice was nurturing and self-nurturing and bringing us to a more peaceful foundation for ourselves. It's incredible to think that, and I remember this in some of his early texts, how he, in many ways, introduced us to the word mindfulness, Yeah. which, frankly, now we hear it kind of everywhere. It's almost yeah. like a pop term, and yeah. uh, it, perhaps in some ways, therefore, has lost some of its meaning in the way it's just used so widely, or not. I, I suppose we could think more about that. But can, can you say a little bit more about how, how that word and the philosophy behind it was very, very impactful on the way it was taught? Oh, yeah. Well, he, he wrote a book that was called The Miracle of Mindfulness, yeah. and that was way back, 1975, 1976. He was a huge proponent of the idea that meditation doesn't just occur on the cushion. Huh it occurs in your daily life. This came from partly the practices that he was introduced to as a 16-year-old monk in Hue. I think at that time, convert Buddhist practice in the US was very much on the cushion. Mm -hmm. And that he constantly was saying, you know, I don't care how much you know about Buddhism. I don't even care if you consider yourself a Buddhist or become a Buddhist. I don't care how skillful your meditation is, if it's not being manifest in how you're behaving toward other people and how you're conducting your life, um, it doesn't mean much. Mm. So he, he encouraged, for example, just wash the dishes to wash the dishes. That's actually one of my favorites. That, that's the line I remember reading that stuck with me for yeah. years. Wash the yeah. dishes to wash the dishes. You know, don't wash the dishes in order to get done with the dishes and get along to something more important or spiritual. Right. It's like, can you be in the moment with the dishes? Can you, this is another thing he used to say, is can you wash your bowl as though your bowl is a baby Buddha that you're washing. Mm. He said, every act is a rite. You can perform every act in your life as a ritual. Mm. And he actually produced a little book called Present Moment, Wonderful Moment, and they were mindfulness verses for daily living. So as I turn on the water in the sink, I am grateful for the source of this water. I'm aware that maybe not everybody in the world has clean water. Um, just a moment to kind of gather yourself and truly pay attention to what you're doing. And not in a simplistic sense, in a sense of reminding yourself that we live in an interconnected universe, that we're all in some ways part of each other, and that everything we do affects everything else in the universe and every other person. You know, as you remind us of, of his teachings, I, I'm reminded of myself uh, at the amount of just sleepwalking I do throughout the day that yeah. all of us do, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the way we just do this or that and we're in the past or the future. And I, 
I, I just love the idea of being reminded of some of this stuff, of, of thinking about how these rituals can be interwoven into every day, because he was somebody that loved ritual, something I don't think we do much more of anymore, but can you say yeah. about that, a little more about that? Well, he, he wasn't an idolater of ritual. He thought ritual was very important for restoring people to the present moment. Um, he wasn't an idolater about anything in Buddhism. I mean, one of his precepts, the, you know, I think the first of the 14 precepts is, you know, do not overly cling to any ideology or practice, even Buddhist ones. So it was like, if it works and it's useful, he was going to say, use it. So, I mean, we, I multitask a lot, you know, I'll read while I'm eating. I mean, this is so against everything he ever <laughs> taught me. Right. But so to just take those moments and remind yourself of the, the sacredness of life, the incredible gift that we happen to be alive today, that we have the 24 hours today that we have. I think he just wanted to create practices that would allow people to sort of return to themselves in that way and let go of their anxiety and let go of their preoccupations. Hmm. And that was the purpose of all that ritual. I would say there are many other Buddhist traditions that are much more ritualized than what he practiced. But he made sure that these little practices and these rituals really permeated our daily lives and how we lived. And they weren't separate from the modern world. He once did a retreat in New York City. And for part of the retreat, he took people out of the meditation hall to do walking meditation on the street, and then go into the subway and do meditation on the subway because that's how his students were living. And he wanted what he was teaching to be appropriate and helpful to them in their true lives. You know, not some fantasy of being off at a retreat for a week, but for actually how we live. I love that because the, the Western idea of, of relaxation or of retreat is go somewhere for a week, which will be radically different than the world you're living. Perhaps there'll be some insight there that occurs there. It may be almost virtually impossible to bring it home with you or to replicate that experience in our day-to-day -day life. And what I'm hearing you say is that he, he kind of knew that. Yeah. That therefore he was preparing us for leading a life that was infused with this style of Buddhism. Yeah, exactly. And he, I think he saw both the suffering within the peace movements and the suffering within existing Buddhist communities. And he really wanted to speak and be an antidote to both of those things. It's interesting. When I was just researching Thich Nhat Hanh and, and going back to his early days, I, you know, you see these incredible photos of him with Martin Luther King or yeah. at protests uh, for civil rights. You mentioned anti-nuclear rallies. Can you say a bit more about the activist part of him, perhaps how you witnessed yeah. that, how it was just interwoven into who he was? Sure. Well, he was born in Hue, which is right in the middle of Vietnam. So it's neither north nor south. He wanted to become a monk at the age of nine, became a monk at the age of 16. And Vietnam was engulfed in a sea of fire. And from a very early point, he was an activist monk and he created an organization called the youth for social service which went out into villages and built schools and helped and several members of which were assassinated by the south vietnamese government so he was always in a tremendously difficult 
position between the forces of North and South, because he's so non-ideological and so oriented towards how can I help. And he ended up being uh, some kind of witness or observer to the peace talks. And again, the emphasis was always on how do we get all of these weapons that are coming in from China and from the West into and in sort of inflaming the conflicts within Vietnam itself. He was eventually exiled from Vietnam by the South Vietnamese government and became an exile in France. His whole life during the boat people crises, he tried to uh, rent and commandeer a, a, a huge boat to go and pull people out of the seas. He wrote poetry about these events. Um, Mar shortly after talking to him, Martin Luther King um, made his statements, very courageous statements against the Vietnam War. So he was always both a profound hermit and an incredibly active person in the world. Mm. And uh, he needed to be both. He needed that capacity for meditation and that deep hermit inside him in order to also be so active, um, including situations that were so painful for him, like being in exile, not being able to be in Vietnam. I think that was incredibly painful for him. So, and, and the story of that peace rally, that big New York peace rally, where he was introduced to a lot of people in the West, there is everybody marching down wherever Fifth Avenue or wherever. And there is Thich Nhat Hanh. And he's walking, but he's not marching. He's doing walking meditation. And he's moving very slowly. And the result is that all everybody behind him is being essentially positively infected by the vibe of this slowness and of this coming to yourself. And so the whole peace march is also slowing down because of him. Mm. You've mentioned just what a big impact he had on you, and perhaps not just in those times at Plum Village, but in terms of who you would become, the things you would write about, the causes you would take up. And I know one of your shared interests with Thich Nhat Hanh was questions around end of life and, and death. Um, can, you, can you talk about how that, that evolved in you and where it would take you? Yeah, I, I would love to. Um, when I was living at Plum Village, where I lived for nine months eventually, every morning with the monks and nuns, we would recite in the meditation hall, I am of the nature to grow old. There's nothing I can do to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. And this is really classic Buddhist reminders. But, and at the time I thought almost that they went over my head because I was in my early 40s. I wasn't really thinking in terms of my life ending. But I think they penetrated my bones on some very deep level. I also did a whole retreat with him where the focus was on imagining the dissolution of the body, death, the decay of the body, the body breaking up into dried bones and being scattered to the winds. And I think that helped inoculate me to some degree against the fear of death and of facing the reality of death and loss. And eventually, my dad had a major stroke, just like Ty, and I was very active in 
caregiving with him for the seven years it took between his stroke and his final death. Mm. And that ended up being the beginning of two books that I've written to help guide Westerners through the experience of long-term caregiving and sickness and death itself. Because, you know, as a culture, we, we tend to turn away from that so much yes. and to hope that some form of technology is going to kind of give us a pass and we're not going to have to consider these things, um, which is not so true in, in cultures that are less oriented to Western medicine. So I think he gave me a certain courage to keep looking at things that are difficult. Uh, I mean, I feel like a real basis of Buddhism is acceptance is the key, that life has suffering, and we humans tend to make it so much worse because we try not to accept it and to turn away from it. And that sort of the basic Buddhist principle is just the more you can open your heart, the more you can turn toward your suffering and toward the suffering of others, the more you're going to find the joy and the love on the other side, the more understanding you're going to have, and the less you're going to be preoccupied with your suffering. It's been such a pleasure to be joined by Katie Butler, author of a number of books, including Knocking on Heaven's Door and The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life. Thank you so much for the time, Katie. I've really, I've loved your reflections on Thich Nhat Hanh and, and for you to share with all this today. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really, really wonderful time for me. And I'm just so grateful to have an opportunity to speak publicly about my own gratitude to him and how, how clean and perfect it feels to me. So thank you very much. Well, that wraps up our hour commemorating the life of Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Zen monk, scholar, activist, and author. You can find links to our guests at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this show and all other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And if you like what you hear, please share this episode with others, could be friends or family. Or if you have a minute, leave us a review with your thoughts. We read every single one of them, and they do a lot to help grow the show. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for listening. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week.